Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. We've got two Bible readings this morning. Um, I'll be reading them. The first one is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. And it's page 1227 on, in the Pew Bibles um, that should be around. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And the second reading is from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 to 13. And it's page 1870 in the Pew Bibles. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown. Oops. I've lost my spot. Um, Pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Thanks very much for reading, Izzy. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if I haven't met you before, I'm Simon, uh, one of the elders who serves here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. Let me add my welcome to that of Izzy and also to that of Joe and the bands. Um, I, 
I've appreciated every word that's been shared this morning, but I particularly love that welcome from Joe to kind of a hope that as we've sung already and as we've um, just been in the presence of the Lord and the power of his spirit, that we can just relax into his presence, uh, knowing that he's a good and loving God. And I pray that as, we, as I speak now, I can help us do that a bit as well. Uh, but in order to have that happen, it'd be good for us to pray that God would, by his spirit, speak to us, address us through his word. Um, so would you pray with me as we come to the Lord's word this morning? Well, loving Father, we give you great thanks and praise for the privilege that it is to be here this morning. Father, a group of people drawn together, uh, no doubt from across the city of Adelaide and, Father, from even from very par- various parts of the world. Father, we come together this morning with all kinds of experience. We come with our different personalities, our different convictions, our different backgrounds. But Lord, thank you so much that we are all one in Christ Jesus. And we thank you that in your mercy you speak to people like us in whatever shape or condition that we are here this morning, whether we're rejoicing, whether we're mourning. Thank you that you address us through your word. Father, do speak to us afresh this morning. And as we gather around your word in the power of the Spirit, Father, we pray that you'd set us up for the rest of today for tomorrow, this week, the rest of the month, the rest of the year, even, Father, I pray for the rest of our lives that we would be a people who keep trusting Jesus, who keep pressing on, following Jesus, come what may, and that we'd help each other to do that, and that we'd all live to the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. For years and years and years and years, I searched for a solution, but it eluded me. I tried multiple devices, a Palm Pilot, a Blackberry, an HP Jonata handheld computer. You may have no idea what they are. Maybe ask your parents, I don't know. I tried cables, Bluetooth, all kinds of software, but my life remained completely disconnected. My calendar, my contacts, my email, and all my documents remain stubbornly independent. Then finally, it arrived. A world in which my phone and my desktop and even my tablet not only talk to one another, they actually seem to like each other. All I needed to do was switch them on and bam, my life was perfectly in sync. The words I wrote on one mysteriously and effortlessly and immediately appeared on the others. No more wheel of death, no more constantly corrupted data, no more endless updates to windows which appeared to make no difference to anything anyway. To put it simply, my life got better. Suddenly everything worked, all was well in the world and I breathed a huge apple-flavoured sigh of relief. Hebrews chapter 8 is written to enable people like you and me to also breathe a huge sigh of relief because a new covenantal operating system that God has rolled out through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus actually changes everything. With Jesus, life really is dramatically different, different in a way that allows us to lift our heads and look around, to enjoy, to rejoice, to relax, to breathe. Different in a way so that rather than frustrating us and confusing us and draining us and grinding us down, 
It strengthens us, energizes us, and above all, encourages us to keep going, to keep pressing on in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I hope that we're in for, I don't know, a fresh blast of Christ-flavored air as we move into a new section of the book of Hebrews, which stretches right through to almost the end of chapter 10. Now, um, as we've been thinking about the book of Hebrews over the past six or seven weeks, we don't actually know exactly who the sermon, this sermon of Hebrews was preached to. But for some reason, the people who received this on the first occasion some 2,000 years ago, probably to avoid increasing pressure and probably persecution from Roman heavyweights, these people felt a strong pull to walk away from Jesus and buy into some form of Judaism. Presumably, that's how the book got the title. It's addressed to the wannabe Hebrews. Whether it was Jews or whether it was Gentiles or whether it was a mixture of both Jew and Gentile, these people were drifting in this direction. And the pastor who preaches the book of Hebrews first is totally committed to forcing them to stop, pause, think a little bit about the craziness of what they're doing in considering abandoning Jesus in going back to the old ways, which, by the way, had their place back in the day, but that just didn't work. His point in this chapter, chapter 8, which I hope you have open in front of you, is why would you go back? Why would you go back to that which would, well, actually be worse than switching back to Windows from the Mac operating system? Hebrews 8 isn't actually a long chapter at all, but it contains three broad movements which combine, carry a substantial weight and thrust of encouragement for people like us to keep pressing on, to stick with Jesus, to throw ourselves into life at work, life at home, life on campus, even life here at church. And we find the first thing in the opening two verses of chapter 8. The pastor says something a little bit unusual. I hope you will look at it with me. He says, Jesus is the ultimate minister, so stick with him. Jesus is the ultimate minister, so stick with him. Verse 1, chapter 8. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Now the point here, right, is the application that's been building for a couple of chapters now already. If you can remember, Psalm 110 has loomed large in Hebrews so far. It's come up in chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 7, and one last blast of Psalm 110 comes here in chapter 8. The pastor really wants us to get the fact that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is the one whom Yahweh says in Psalm 110 verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make you your enemies, make your enemies my footstool. And that Jesus, secondly, the eternal Son of the Father, is the one in whom Psalm 110 verse 4 says, is qualified to be a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you have no idea who Melchizedek is, tough luck. Should have been here last week. No, chase it up on the podcast. Phil did a great job. He sums it all up in, in chapter 8 verse 1. We have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. 
The pastor shows us that Jesus, the eternal son of God, is the all-conquering, long-promised messianic king who also happens to be the co-ruler of the universe. But he's also the always on the roster, always at work, eternal high priest, who unlike any of his predecessors has offered a sacrifice with such enduring power and so ultimately effective, which means that his work is essentially done. And now he's sitting down at the right hand of the majestic father in the heavenly realm. You don't sit down when you're making sacrifices. You only sit down when the sacrifice has been made. And then the pastor adds the punchline. Jesus is the one who is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not the one that was set up by man. The pastor's point actually isn't all that complicated. What Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing right now for us is so utterly superior, so much better than any priest or high priest has ever done before. So it ought to be inconceivable that anyone would walk away from him, especially to step backwards towards an old Levitical system, which didn't really work. That'd be nuts. And he goes on to back that up in the rest of this chapter, and he'll back it up in chapter 9, and he'll back it up again in chapter 10 over the coming weeks. In what I think actually is one of the best commentaries on the book of Hebrews um, by a guy named Gareth Cockrell, he writes this, quote, the artistry of the pastor's presentation in chapters eight, nine, and 10 is like a symphony in three movements, developing these three themes, sanctuary, sacrifice, and then covenant. Each chapter, eight, nine, and 10, begins with sanctuary and then ends with covenant. And the center of each is the ever-expanding theme of sacrifice. When the author, he writes, as conductor, is finished his symphony, he wants to leave his readers overwhelmed at the wonder and the majesty of this high priest, ready at all costs, therefore, to persevere through the benefits that this high priest gives. And that's what we're dealing with today. And in chapter 8, the pastor highlights these three spheres where Jesus' superiority just superiority, just shines through the sanctuary Jesus works in, the sacrifice that he offers, and the relationship, the covenant he operates. Now here in chapter 8, verse 2, the focus first up is clearly on the sanctuary that this high priest works in. Jesus is described as a minister who works in the holy places in the true tent set up by God. Jesus is the ultimate minister who doesn't serve in a little replica sanctuary, little tabernacle tent set up on earth by Moses back in the Old Testament, but he serves in the real thing. He serves in the very presence of Yahweh in the heavenly dwelling, the true and better tent, the holy places, the sanctuary as it's described later in the chapter, These are all ways of describing places where God the Father is and where he rules with his Son and by his side in the company of the Holy Spirit. That's where Jesus does his priestly business. How could therefore anyone think about swapping a high priest who operates there for one who messes around in a tent down here? 
a little over a year ago, um, I was in Melbourne with Sebastian, my nine-year-old. Uh, we went to Melbourne to see our beloved, you know who, Richmond. We went to see our beloved Richmond Tigers play the Melbourne Demons. We lost. Anyway, um, while we were there, we journeyed to Chadston Shopping Centre to visit Legoland. I don't know if you've been to Chadston Shopping Centre before. It's the biggest shopping centre in the Southern Hemisphere. So if you're into shopping, that's where you need to go. We went there not to shop, but to go to Legoland. Uh, to my surprise, I was actually pretty impressed with Legoland. Um, I remember vividly walking around with Sebastian and we could see a Lego Mount Rushmore with the four heads of former US presidents on it. There was a Lego Eiffel Tower and they'd even gone to the trouble of with Lego recreating the entire, not the entire, but a fair bit of the Melbourne CBD, including a packed MCG with Lego. And apparently now there is a Lego Great Barrier Reef at Legoland in Melbourne, if you're so inclined. But it would be a bit pathetic if we were the offered the choice right between visiting the real thing and going to the tiny imitation of the thing built with little plastic bricks. It would be pretty pathetic if we opted for the Lego version, wouldn't you think? I was getting three barbecue savoury bites from um, Baker's Delight this morning with Sebastian. That's our kind of traditional Sunday morning thing. And I said, Bazzy, I'm going to talk about Legoland this morning. And he's like, really? I'm like, yes. What are you going to say about it, Dad? And I was going to say, basically, like, you know, the author of Hebrews is comparing, and Bazzy's going, just get to the Legoland bit. No, like, the author of Hebrews is comparing, like, this tent that was built by human hands and that Jesus is in the real thing. And I'm going to use Lego as this explanation, like, that we can see the Eiffel Tower in bricks, but what if you were offered the opportunity to go to the real thing? So I'm testing out my illustration on my nine-year-old son, right? I said, Bazzy, what would you rather do? Go and see the real Eiffel Tower or go and see the Eiffel Tower made out of Lego bricks? I'm hanging on, right? I'm going, please say the right thing. I'd want to go to the real thing, Dad. I'm like, yes, praise the Lord. That's the pastor's point, right? Why would you settle for an imitation when we have the real thing? Drawing on Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, the pastor spells out in verses 5 through 6 that from the beginning, the priests the system of priests operating out of the tabernacle was designed to be a replica, a mini working model of the actual ultimate sanctuary in heaven. Verse 5, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. God graciously gave you a working model of the real thing. Now forget about the model, for Jesus is a minister in the holy places, the true and better tent. Very deliberately, the pastor calls Jesus a liturgos, a minister, the minister who works in the presence of God in the ultimate sanctuary. The word is used again in 8.6 of Jesus' ministry. Semantically, right, it's connected to, but different from latria, the word used for Old Testament priests. So the pastor here very deliberately makes a rigid distinction for the simple reason that Jesus' ministry, his role as liturgos, minister, is on a totally different level and demands different words. Jesus is our pioneer, our trailblazer, 
the forerunner who takes us by the hand all the way into the presence of God. He's our ultimate minister. So stick with him. And one of the things I love about Hebrews is the way in which the pastor constantly pushes us to take hold of the truths that he's telling us about, that he's explaining to us. And he says, I want you to take this on yourselves. I want you to grasp hold of this truth yourselves. At no point does he let things just remain sort of theoretical or stuck in a university ivory tower or entirely impersonal. He shows us that Jesus is the very minister who leads us, takes us by our hand, leads us into the beautiful, blazing presence of God the Father. It's pretty personal, isn't it? Leads us right into that space. Let us with confidence approach the throne of grace and there receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And we're allowed to go there anytime. That's why it's really important for us at City Light Church North Adelaide, I think, to drink deeply from this word of exhortation to the Hebrews. Because the pastor pushes, this, pushes us to make this our own to engage with this truth personally, to gaze at the Lord Jesus Christ and let him minister to us, to let him take us by the hand into the presence of God. So let me ask you, has it really sunk in that Jesus Christ died for you and for me? Has it really sunk in that he rose from the dead to give you and me life? And even this morning, have we yet again grasped, as we thought about this Jesus as our high priest, has the tender reality that Jesus has grabbed you by the hand and led you into the breathtakingly, jaw-droppingly, intoxicating presence of our loving, heavenly, majestic, almighty, forever-loving Father? Has They've, have these truths over the past weeks, I don't know, gradually just begun to melt your heart a little bit so that your grip on the Lord Jesus Christ is just a little bit tighter by faith. Because that's the pastor's goal in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, as he reminds us that Jesus is our ultimate minister. So brothers and sisters, stick with him. But things get even more personal, actually, in chapter 8, verses 3 to 4, as we discover that Jesus has given himself for us so we should stick with him. Look with me at verse 3 of chapter 8. Every high priest, our pastor says, is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. Now, you don't have to be an avid reader of the Old Testament to know that part of the job of the priest in the temple or the tabernacle was to offer stuff, was to offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people. It's just what priests did in the ancient world. So if Jesus is a high priest, he needs something to offer, right? But what he offers is so off the charts, so dramatically different, that it actually sets him apart from every other priest who's ever existed. They continually offer gifts. 
That's a present tense. You know how I say grammar is good for you, right? They continually offer gifts. Present tense, a repeated action. Jesus offered, here he comes, aorist tense, one, something on one occasion. What is that something? Flick back in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. What is that one something aorist tense that Jesus offered on one occasion? Chapter 7, verse 26. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. The something he offered once was himself. It's so understated here, it's so easy to miss, but miss it we must not. Because the fact that Jesus gave himself for us lies at the very heart of everything we do and everything we are. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Do you want to sing it with me? It was my sin that held him there Until it was accomplished His dying breath has brought me life I know that it is finished Jesus gave himself for us. Just, just sit with that for a moment. Allow it to sink in. I don't think it's a particular strength of ours. Australian, reformed, Acts 29, City Light Church, North Adelaide, City Light, family of church, evangelicals. I don't think it's a strength of ours to meditate on the death of Christ for us. Could be wrong. I think we've got our strengths. Biblical theology, missional strategy, vines and trellises, careful exegesis, church planting, pipelines, capturing the sense of the beauty, self-giving and personal love of Jesus for us. I'd say that's a growth area. But this truth is everywhere in the New Testament and it's everywhere in the Old. Let me just read a few verses of Scripture for you. Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. We read... You see, at just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Jesus Christ has given himself for us. I've been really helped to think about the sacrifice of Jesus, his life-giving death for us a little bit by a book by an old Presbyterian, seems fitting as we're meeting in a Presbyterian church, a guy named Stephen Charnock who wrote it in 1684. He didn't write this edition in 1684, but this is when it was first written. The book's called Christ Crucified, a once-for-all sacrifice. And this is what he says. I'll just read a little bit out for you. This is what he says about Christ's death for us. Quote, Surely we can't look upon Christ crucified for us without our hearts melting for sorrow. Should we not bleed at heart as often as we think seriously of Christ bleeding for us? Should we be unmelted if we consider the cross the punishment of our crimes, not his? It must be a miserable soul, worse than brutish, that can walk on in ways of enmity with a sense of the crucified Christ in his or her mind. Can we take any pleasure in that which procured so much pain for our best friend? Can we love that which hath brought a curse better than him who bore the curse for us? He goes on to say, You see, the due consideration of his death will incline our wills to new desires and resolutions. It will stifle that luxury and ambition and worldliness which harass our souls. We have good reason, he says, to determine within ourselves to know nothing but Jesus Christ and especially him crucified. The self-sacrifice of Jesus will loom large, actually, as we work through Hebrews 9 and 10 in the coming weeks. But let me just challenge you with this. Over the coming weeks, over the months to come, over the coming years, in the midst of relentless working hours, which I know many of you are experiencing, in the midst of relentless working hours, cost of living pressures, rising interest rates, geopolitical tensions all over the place, serving at church, witnessing to your family and your friends and your colleagues, to make sure that whatever else we read about or think about or talk about that the person of Jesus and his death for us are at the very center of our heart's affection and mind's attention, and that Christ's death is the white-hot core of our theology of all that we are and all that we do. Let's build time into our days, brothers and sisters, into our weeks, into our routines to meditate on, to think about the death of Christ for us, I don't know, I brought some of my friends along. I brought some books along. Why not read John Stott's The Cross of Christ? Couldn't find Leon Morris's The Atonement, but that's another book that you might want to read, which is really helpful. Uh, what about um, 
John Piper's 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. That's short, it's good, short books, good book. Here's another great book, The Crucifixion. Bit hardcore, this one, short but um, full on. Crucifixion, Martin Hengel. I read this every year in the lead up to Easter. It's powerful, just what Jesus has done for us. And and if if you want to give your life to reading a book, here's one. This is, apart from the Bible, by the way, that just goes without saying, you know, pastor has to say that. Um, um, Fleming Rutledge's book, The Crucifixion. This, uh, Fleming Rutledge, she's an academic from the States. Unbelievable book. Um, It's not so short, right? But wow, like in terms of a study of the meaning, the beauty, the horror, the glory of the cross, this is a great book to get into. So there you go. You can come and explore those a bit later on. I share all these not because like we're saved by reading books, right? I, say, I share these because at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, it is Christ's self-giving for us that will fuel our persevering with him. I'll say that again, it is Christ's self-giving for us that will fuel our persevering with him. Jesus gave himself for us, let's stick with him. And there's a third thing. Jesus has introduced a covenant that actually works So stick with him. Verse 6. But in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. Verse 7. For if there have been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. The pastor having dealt with the sanctuary that Christ operates in, the real one, and the sacrifice he offers himself, the pastor now turns to the covenant that Christ establishes, the relationship between us and God that he establishes. If giving up on Jesus, drifting back into Jewish practices is stupid because Jesus deals in reality and gives himself for us, then it's totally dumb because Jesus' priestly ministry actually changes things. This covenant, the covenant that Jesus establishes in his blood, actually works. At this point, the pastor switches from the priestly ministry which Jesus exercised to the covenant relationships which his priestly ministry allows him to mediate. Now, the idea of Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant has two sides. First, the mediator is the one who brokers the deal, who speaks to God and to us and for us in order to get this new deal set up. But there's another side. The mediator is also the one who guarantees that the agreement is actually enacted. So Jesus both sets up the new covenant between God and people like us and he makes sure that it actually works. And that's a massive step up from the way things were all the way through the Old Testament. Now the pastor is quick on the one hand to say that actually nothing really has changed. The basic statement, the original statement of the covenant was, what was it? I'll be your God and you'll be my people. That remains constant. God's faithfulness is not in doubt. In fact, the reverse is true. What God has done to ensure that his ancient, enduring commitment is realized confirms that he can be trusted. But at the same time, everything is different. This side of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, session, and high priestly ministry. He knows there was a double problem. 
Jesus knows there was two problems. The first, as has been pointed out time and time again in Hebrews, the people, God's original people, were faithless. They couldn't keep their side of the bargain. The wilderness generation, right, which we looked at in, I think, chapters three and four, were a wonderful example of what not to do, yeah? They hardened their hearts. God gave them all this great information through the prophet Moses, right? But the issue was they couldn't do it. They didn't do what they were supposed to do with the information. They couldn't do what they were told. The information God had given to them through Moses didn't transform them, which is the second part of the problem. The first covenant didn't deal with their heart issues. It's the new covenant anticipated in Deuteronomy 30, picked up again in Jeremiah 31, again in Ezekiel 36 and 37, which promises exactly what people like you and me need. Change. A new heart. To have our hearts of stone removed and a heart of flesh put in. Change. Not just promises of land and descendants and blessing, but better promises of a new heart that enables the other things to be realised. That enables us to want to do what God wants and to love him. Had the first covenant been faultless, we wouldn't have needed a second one, yeah? The first version of the covenantal operating system simply wasn't up to the job, and so a better version was needed, which is exactly what was promised in Jeremiah 31, which is where the pastor goes in verse 8. Have a look with me, verse 8. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, listen to this. This is the new covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts, I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. In verse 12, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. There is so much that could be said about this, and we will say more about it over the coming weeks, but for the moment, the pastor simply wants to make a positive statement that God has created the conditions to enable real, immediate, fully-fledged relationship with his people, brought to reality through the indwelling Holy Spirit and forgiveness that is held out and promised and actually delivered in Jesus. The new covenant holds out the promise of consistent obedience intimate relationship and actual forgiveness for people like you and me at an entirely new level god will be our god and we will be his people this covenant that actually works this is a covenant sorry that actually works and so the pastor verse 13 writes by calling this covenant new he presumably god or maybe jeremiah has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear You see, just as soon as the covenant, the new covenant is announced in Jeremiah 31, the old one becomes like a, I don't know, a lame duck covenant. 
yeah? It's a bit like the value of it drops. It's a bit like, you know, you, you buy a 2023 brand new car and just as soon as you do that, the 2024 model's released at the end of 2023. You know, it's gone. Shouldn't come as a surprise to them that the new covenant is better, it's old news. So how on earth could they continue to buy into something that is going to be discontinued? It was announced centuries before that it would be discontinued. And even if they could buy spare parts for the old one, which they can't, it wouldn't work anyway. Given all that, the pastor says to them and to us today, how can you think it's a good idea to opt for the old model over the new. Jesus has introduced a covenant relationship that works. So stick with him. On the night before Jesus died, Jesus took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is the glorious reality of what he's talking about. So if you want to stay on track through today, this month, this year, for the rest of your life, take the new covenant reality seriously. What do I mean by take the new covenant reality seriously? How do we take it seriously? Three things and we're done. First, remember that God has already circumcised your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has given you a new heart. We haven't been perfected yet but we've already been changed. We've been made holy in Christ, been made alive in Christ, given everything we need for life and for godliness. We have the Holy Spirit in us, renovating us, making us more like Jesus, enabling us to live in a way that pleases God. So press on in obedience, brothers and sisters. Make covenant obedience in Christ your priority and your passion the first thing. Second thing, remember that in Christ we know God. We we read, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. The new covenant means that we're all sons and daughters of God. That means having an intimate relationship with our heavenly father. In his classic book, Jim Packer uh, writes in Knowing God this, I love this, he writes, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. And here he says this, listen to this. Knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill our hearts. Isn't that good? The question is how thrilled are you? How thrilled am I? The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, given the family name. To be right with God the judge is one thing, but to be loved by God the Father is even greater. That's a relationship to thrill our hearts. It is our privilege, our duty, our delight to cultivate that relationship. You know, when the author says, come, approach the throne of grace with confidence, drawn near with confidence to receive grace and mercy, it's like, yeah, come. Cultivate that relationship. Draw on the resources of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, if we do not know God and if we don't grow in our knowledge of God during our time here, then I wonder if we're wasting our time. Let us cultivate our relationship. We've been given new hearts. 
We've been welcomed into the family of God as sons and daughters, dearly loved. And thirdly, in Christ, through this new covenant, we are actually, completely, and astonishingly forgiven. Actually, completely, and astonishingly forgiven. If you're like me, I suspect that if there is one grace of God that we often can take for granted as we journey along through the Christian life, it's this one, that we're forgiven. And forgiveness is found nowhere else in this increasingly, increasingly harsh, harsh cancel culture-obsessed world. Nowhere else but in Christ. He's the only one who has the right. He's the only one who has the willingness. He's the only one who has the ability to forgive the tsunami of sins that we send him every day. Stupid decisions. Unkind words. Harsh reactions. Self-indulgent choices. Wrong accusations. Boastful claims. All of that and more, freely, fully, and forever forgiven by the immeasurable kindness of his self-sacrifice applied to us through his never-ceasing, around-the-clock, high priestly ministry. I think I bought my first Apple computer in 2007 or thereabouts. We had many happy years together. I think it's still at home, actually, in a box. Probably feeling a bit sad, a bit left out. And then I remember at one point, for some reason, I got my hands on an HP. Looking back, I have no idea what I was thinking. But I knew better. I finished college. 2012, I came to my senses, and I haven't taken a backward glance since. The pastor wants these wannabe Hebrews to come to their senses too. Not to give in to the pressure. Not to be fooled. Not to be tricked into thinking life would be much easier if only we took a backward step. Just don't do it, he says. Don't do it. Jesus is the ultimate minister. Let him serve you. Stick with your great high priest. Jesus has given himself for you. Stick with him. And Jesus has set up a covenant relationship with God that actually works. It gives us the new heart that we need. It welcomes us as loved sons and daughters into his fatherly care forever. Stick with him. To do anything else, brothers and sisters, makes no sense at all. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, um, in many ways there may be not a lot here that we've not known or studied before. In many cases, maybe for some of us, for a long time. But Father, we know that what we need so often isn't 
novelty or new information, but Father, simply to take hold of the gospel again, to see Jesus more clearly and to love him more dearly. So, Father, thank you for revealing Christ to us through your word and by your spirit. Thank you for doing that afresh today. We ask that you do it more. And so, Father, over the coming week, over the coming month, over the coming years, Father, for the rest of our days, help us to stick with Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.